Welcome to the South Carolina State Library's podcast, Library Voices SC. I'm Curtis Rogers, Communications Director, and today I'm pleased to have with us in our virtual podcast studio, Christopher Bird Downey. Also known as Captain Bird, Chris received his degree in history from Virginia Tech in 1995, and shortly after graduating, began a career in the maritime industry. His most recent book is titled Edgar Allan Poe's Charleston, and he has authored two previous books on the history of piracy in South Carolina. And those are Charleston and the Golden Age of Piracy and Steed Bonnet, Charleston's Gentleman Pirate. A native of Virginia, he now lives in Charleston with his wife, Tina, and son, Sailor. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's my great pleasure to be here. Glad to have you with us. So uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you became known as Captain Bird. I think there's a story behind that. There's a little bit of a story behind that one. So yeah, I am originally from Virginia, uh, the Richmond area, a little south, and actually Virginia's smallest city, Colonial Heights. And, uh, but I've been in Charleston for almost 20 years now. Uh, and so I'm a bird. My middle name is Bird. And when I was a little boy, it seemed that everyone that was a boy was named Christopher and all girls were named Amy. So everyone was always anxious to think of a nickname to call people so it wasn't confusing. And Bird was, uh, was always my name growing up. And even my dad called me Bird. But, uh, so, but I became Captain Bird because I actually started doing uh, boat tours. I, uh, I was a boat owner as long as I can remember. And when you're a boat owner, always you're thinking of buying your next boat, something bigger and better. So about, oh gosh, 15 plus years ago, I was anxious to move on to my next big boat, but I couldn't rationalize how to to pay for another bigger boat with uh, bigger, funner things on it. So it struck me that I could give boat tours in the boat, and that would offset the cost by taking passions around talking about history of Charleston in my boat. Uh, so I, I thought it was an ingenious plan. I went down to the Maritime Center in downtown Charleston, which is where at that time people were picking up and dropping off passengers in tour boats. I spoke to the director and I was like, look, here's my plan. Here's what I want to do. And uh, he was like, sure, you know, I'll charge you a fee to pick up and drop off and you can do that. And so we had it all worked out. And then as I was leaving, he said, the only thing is you can't have a boat tour that competes with any other boat tours that we're currently doing. And I was like, okay, well, what do you have? And he had just about everything. He had civil war, he had ghost boat tours, he had the revolutionary war, you name it, he had it. And I said, do you have pirates? And he said, no, actually we don't have pirates. And so I said, that's it. I'll be the pirate guy. I'll make pirate boat tours. And uh, so uh, part of the deal was you have to get Coast Guard licensing. So I had to go take all the classes and put in all the hours and take all the exams. And then I legally became a captain. And so playing on the bird name, I became Captain Bird uh, with pirate boat tours around Charleston Harbor for a few years. And I did that for a while until, uh, until I got married and had a son. And then, you know, those things kind of slowed down, but uh, it was fun while, while it lasted. <laughs> Very cool. And um, as you were talking, I, I want to let folks know that uh, if they want to know more about you and uh, the books that you have written and we're going to talk about, they can go to www.captainbirds.com and that's C-A-P-T-A-I-N byrds.com. So we'll also have a link to that in our podcast page. So um, aside from your maritime um, interests and career, how did you get interested in writing and, and interested in writing about Edgar Allan Poe and about pirates? 
actually it was actually linked to my boat tours. I was uh, doing the boat tours and I quickly discovered when I was giving pirate boat tours that Steve Bonnet, who was the subject of my first book, it was the most popular story, you know, the strange, basically a millionaire from Barbados who turned to a pirate, got hooked up with Blackbeard and was hanged here in Charleston originally in 1718. He was always the most fun part of the story. So through my boat tours, I actually met one of the editors at my publisher, History Press. And she said, have you ever considered writing a book about Steve Bonnet? And I was like, absolutely not. That sounds terrible. But she was, you know, impressed upon me that, you know, maybe why don't you write like two or 3,000 words, send it to me. And if we like it, we'll send you a contract and you can write a book about Steve Bonnet. So I put together a couple thousand words. I sent it off to her and I didn't hear anything for like three months. I was like, wow, they must have thought that was terrible. Uh, and then one day in the mail, a contract showed up and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to write a book. And uh, here I am three books later and working on my fourth. So uh, it's been a wild ride. But um, yeah, that's how I got in was actually through the boat tours. That's amazing. And so two of your books uh, that I mentioned earlier, uh, we've got South Carolina, Charleston, um, and the Golden Age of Piracy, and then Steve Bonnet, Charleston's Gentleman Pirate. But then your other one is Edgar Allan Poe's Charleston. How did you kind of veer off and get interested in Poe's works? So I wrote the Steve Bonnet book, and then uh, I guess a year or so later, the publisher came back and said, look, Steve Bonnet did well. We enjoyed working with you. Would you like to do another one? And I said, sure but I'll do anything but pirates. And they said, okay, let's think about it. And then they came back and they said, look, just do one more about pirates. And then the next one, you could do something else. So that's when I wrote the Charleston, the golden age of piracy. Um, and then there was kind of a lull that we went back and forth with some different ideas. I wanted to kind of do something about the Cooper river and some different ideas. And uh, eventually we settled on Edgar Allan Poe. And honestly, the Edgar Allan Poe, Aside from my link to Edgar Allan Poe, because I grew up around Richmond, where Edgar was, was spent most of his life, actually. When I was doing some research on the very first book, Steve Bonnet, I was at the library, the Charleston Library Society downtown. And I asked the librarian, I said, you know, I'm looking for some information on piracy here in Charleston. Do you have any resources? You know, and as will often happen, we kind of went off a tangent and we started talking about Edgar Allan Poe. And we started talking about the gold bug story, which is the story of pirate treasure and Captain Kidd. And we were kind of going down this rabbit hole. And then she just kind of like matter of factly said, did you know that Edgar Allan Poe plagiarized a poem written into the Charleston newspaper uh, from 1809 to write the poem Annabelle Lee? And I was like, no, I did not know that. And she was like, hang on. And she came back with this random magazine from 1922 called the English and German, the Journal of English and German Philology from April of 1922. And it was an article that a man had written and he had found a poem in a, the Charleston Courier from 1800, actually 1807. So two years before Edgar was born. And that poem is as close to the poem Annabelle Lee as you can get without being the Annabelle Lee. And it's actually titled To Anna, so it's even almost the same name. And uh, so I always put that in a corner of my mind and then I carried around for the next 10 years. So when the idea of Edgar Allan Poe came up, that kind of became the center of, of my Edgar Allan Poe research was going back to that, that article from 1922. So that's a big part of the book is, is that poem. And Charleston's always had a very long um, connection 
and legend of, of the real Annabelle Lee being from Charleston. So if you ever take a ghost tour downtown in Charleston, you'll certainly hear the story of Annabelle Lee and Edgar Allan Poe. So, so that's how I got into Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> that's amazing. And I know talking from the library aspect, I'm pretty sure there is still a Edgar Allan Poe library branch. I think it's on the, is it on Sullivan's Island? It's on Sullivan's Island. Yeah, it's actually inside of an old uh, Spanish-American War battery from uh, the late 1800s. So when you go in, it's very claustrophobic because the ceilings are very low. And it's, but yes, it's a really cool place to visit. But yes, it's still there. <laughs> Great. Um, so uh, talk to our listeners a little bit about your writing process. I'm sure you have to do a lot of research, but you know, do you know the title of a book before you start? Do you do an outline? What's your process like? So the Pirates books kind of came backwards because I had done all the research for the boat tour. So that was already kind of there. Uh, the Edgar Allan Poe, I certainly spent, you know, a solid eight months doing research for where I really sat down and started writing. But honestly, for me, I mean, I, I, I don't uh, promote this idea, but probably this isn't the best way to write, but I'm a, I'm a big walk taker and bike rider. And so when I do that for hours in my head, I just kind of formulate the words the way I want to say things. And then I just sit down and it all just kind of comes out and I'm very much an editor as I go. I, I, I obviously go back at the end and, and check and edit, but you know, I'll write a sentence 10 times and then change it and then read it in a paragraph and change the paragraph 10 times. That's kind of my writing style is that it all goes through my brain first before I kind of get out on the page. And I always try to like write in a way that's almost conversational where I'm, I'm telling a story and maybe that goes back to the boat tour days where I'm, kind of having a conversation with someone about my subject versus just trying to give you dates and figures and things like that. That's interesting. A lot of, a lot of people, you know, will talk about outlining and a lot of people will say, I have to let the story unfold, but I'm sure with these kind of books, you know, there's so much research involved and what, what kinds of uh, research tools have you used in the past? Uh, in the past, so the great thing about Steve Bonnet is we have his trial records still available. So you can literally read word for word, you know, Steve Bonnet says, Judge Trott says, because uh, Nicholas Trott, the judge of the trial, printed and published the uh, actual trial transcript. So that part's fantastic. Lots of looking back at Admiralty records on microfiche, which you know, even the Charleston Library here has, or the archives in Columbia. Uh, for Poe, that one was not as difficult because there, I mean, if, if you look, there are literally millions and millions of books on Edgar Allan Poe. There's no end to, in fact, you can get lost in Edgar Allan Poe pretty quickly. Um, when I actually sent the first manuscript in, they came back and said, look, this thing's too long. You got to cut something out. So I ended up actually cutting about 10,000 words from the original manuscript because it was just too long, but there was so much to talk about. And when you consider the fact that Edgar Allan Poe only spent really 13 months in Charleston and he spent basically his whole life trying to hide the fact that he was ever in the army and in Charleston, there's plenty of information out there uh, in history about him and Charleston to share. So that's, um, that's kind of how Edgar Allan Poe went. But yeah, lots of time in the library, lots of microfiche, lots of um, admiralty records. And, uh, and then for Edgar, just lots and lots of books. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. And, and that's why, you know, and this is Library Voices. So we always, uh, you know, appreciate when we talk to authors and, and hear about what your research is like, how, uh, you know, the libraries factor into that, because um, 
we see a lot of authors come in doing research. So um, we're always, always glad to talk about that. So um, since you've, you've done so much research into pirates, do you have any particularly interesting or favorite pirate stories that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Sure, yeah. Uh, so Steve Bonnet is, is always my favorite story. Uh, it's strange. I tell my wife, it, it's almost like Steve Bonnet's become like the crazy uncle that doesn't show up at Thanksgiving in my life. Like he's, he's kind of transformed into like almost someone I know, even though he's been gone for over 300 years. But, you know, the Steve Bonnet story, again, he's, he's this wealthy plantation owner in Barbados. He's married. He has children. He's got it made. He's got hundreds of acres. He's got some windmills that he uses for the sugarcane crop. Uh, he's got over a hundred slaves. So he's doing very well in Barbados. He's the third generation on the island. Um, and then for whatever reason, he turns to piracy. Um, contemporary accounts say maybe it was because his wife like drove him crazy. He decided being a pirate was better than being married. Lots of different reasons. Probably it was politically motivated. We know he was a Jacobite. He was a, a promoter of the, uh, of a Catholic King being on the throne who had, uh, James Francis Stewart, who, in his opinion, was the rightful heir to the throne of England, but after the Glorious Revolution in 1688, they, they basically made it impossible for a Catholic to be a, a king. But we know that he was a Jacobite. In fact, his, his pirate ship, which, by the way, he built uh, and paid for out of his own pocket, was originally called Revenge, but later he would change the name to Royal James to honor James Francis Stewart, the person he believed to be the rightful heir to the throne. But Steve, you know, he's not a very good pirate. He falls in with Blackbeard. Blackbeard kind of takes advantage of him. You know, probably the biggest pirate story in Charleston is Blackbeard comes in the spring of 1718. He blockades the city, um, basically takes some hostages um, and makes some demands. Uh, he sails away about a week later. And the Charlestonians, obviously their pride and their honor has been hurt. They're looking for a little bit of revenge. So they in a couple of months get news there's a pirate in the uh, Cape Fear River in North Carolina that some merchants had come across and so they let the Charleston authorities know and so Colonel William Rhett who is a uh, kind of a superstar of early Charleston history he goes to the governor because there's really no naval presence in Charleston at the time but he offers the the governor that he will lead an expedition with two merchant vessels, the Sea Nymph and the Henry, the Henry being the flagship that he'll be on, to go to the Cape Fear River, capture these pirates, bring them back to Charleston to be tried. They didn't even know who the pirate was when they left. It was just a sense of, look, this, this Blackbeard thing has happened. We're embarrassed and we just want to get some revenge. So they sail north up into, uh, into the, the Cape Fear River, North Carolina. They can see the mast of the ships above the tree line. Uh, it turned out that the pirate was there looking to wait out the hurricane season. and He was doing some fitting. Um, so they basically have the, the pirate ship corner in the Cape Fear River. Um, so I'll just read a little excerpt, if you like, from what would become known as the Battle of the Sandbars. Uh, basically, the Henry and the Sea Nymph arrive at the mouth of the Cape Fear River. They know at some point these pirates that they can see across the tree line, their mass sticking up, are going to try to make a move against them to come out to flee uh, engage them in battle, and then flee out to the open sea. Um, so I'll just read a little bit from that. So at dawn, Rhett could see the sails being raised on the pirate vessel, and he gave the order for the Henry and Sea Nymphs to weigh anchor. Steve was taking advantage of the ebbing tide to make a run for the open ocean. 
outnumbered and outgunned, Steed knew his only hope was to avoid being boarded and engage in a running fight until the Royal James could clear the mouth of the Cape Fear River. Rounding a small wooded headland, the Royal James came into full view of Rhett. A seasoned mariner, Rhett quickly recognized the pirates' intentions and set the Henry on the course to intercept the Royal James and block the pirates' escape route to sea. As the Henry bore down, the Royal James was forced to maneuver precariously close to the river's western shore. Waiting in reserve, the seamen sailed further downstream in case the pirates were able to outrun the Henry. Steed was just preparing to give the order for the portside cannons to open fire on the Henry when he was suddenly and violently thrown forward into the deck. The Royal James had run aground. As the Henry drew within 100 feet, she too grounded on the same shoal. Much further downstream and well out of range, the seamen joined the other two vessels hard aground. The Henry and Royal James immediately began to exchange small arms fire. Both vessels listed dangerously on their starboard sides, but the pirates had a distinct advantage as the Royal James deck was inclined away from the Henry and the pirates were able to take cover behind the railing. The deck of the Henry was fully exposed to the Royal James and the pirates poured deadly shot into the South Carolinians. The cannons of both ships were essentially neutralized as neither could bring their guns to bear from their tilted decks. The Henry's gunners could not elevate their cannons high enough and the pirates could not range their cannons low enough. In between musket volleys, ugly taunts were exchanged by both sides. The pirates lodged insults against King George, and in return, the Henry mocked James III, referring to him as the Pretender. A contemporary account of the fight that would come to be known as the Battle of the Sandbar describes the actions. The pirates made a whiff in their bloody flag and beckoned with their hats in derision to our peoples to come board them, which they only answered with cheerful huzzas and told them it would be soon their turn. Men who dared to poke their heads above the cover of bulwarks were mowed down. Steed noticed Thomas Nichol across a deck cowering and refusing to fight. Nichols had only recently joined the Royal James and had found the pirate life not to his liking. He refused to sign articles. Nichols would later testify that Steed called to him across a deck and threatened to blow his brains out if he did not engage the enemy. Nichols still refused, but as Steed leveled his gun to fire, he was distracted as another pirate was struck and fell dead. The battle waged for five hours as both ships waited for the next high tide. Regardless of the current advantage, Steve was all too aware that the victor of this battle would be the vessel that refloated at first. A great cheer was heard from the Henry as she battered the sloop, as the battered sloop was the first vessel to ease off the river bottom. The sea nymph was soon also free, and both vessels began to bear down on the still Royal James. His blood still coursing with adrenaline rage, Steve declared that he would ignite the Royal James powder magazine and send every man to the river bottom before he would submit to his attackers. So long story short is, unfortunately for Steed, he was the last to free himself off the bottom of the sandbars. Uh, despite his threats to blow up the ship and take everyone down the bottom of the river, his crew was able to, to wrangle him and they did surrender. And that's when they were brought back to Charleston to, to stand trial. So I love that story mostly because it's, it's almost Monty Python-esque that three ships that engaged in the battle all ran aground and then for five hours basically made fun of each other and took shots at one another until one of them finally was refloated with the high tide and was able to, uh, to claim the victory of the day. So, Well, as, as you were reading that excerpt, um, you know, I think a lot of people have in their mind Pirates of the Caribbean. They see, you know, Johnny Depp's character and, and they see, you know, the long hair and the patch over one eye. But, you know, why was why was Steed named a gentleman pirate? Did he have a different look? I can only imagine, you know, someone dressed in much finer clothes, maybe. <laughs> right. Well, he definitely was uh, well educated. He he was an educated man, which certainly was a, a, a different uh, than most pirates. 
there are reports that he still was wearing a powdered wig because of being a gentleman in Barbados, even when he was as a pirate. Um, you know, again, he paid out of his pocket for his pirate ship and then his pirate crew, he actually paid a salary. So, you know, most pirates live in the world where they sign articles and then they would, you know, share whatever treasure or booty they, they captured. But Steve was actually paying them a salary, um, which was mostly due to the fact that he really had no experience as a captain, navigation, anything in, on the maritime side. So he was really kind of under the thumb of his crew to kind of run things because he didn't really have a lot of experience. So, you know, at one point when he's with Blackbeard, they capture a ship and the report from the captain of the merchant vessel that was, that was taken uh, by Blackbeard and Steed reported that Steed was seen on deck in his pajamas walking around reading books at the time of the capture. So he was uh, definitely not your, your typical pirate. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we have to kind of dispel the image of what I think a lot of people have in their mind already. So, right. um, so since this is a Library Voices podcast, um, do you have any kind of library related stories you'd like to share? It could be something personal or something about working on a book? Yeah, so, you know, my funnest library story is that one where the, the library actually introduced me to that that poem of um, that was written in 1809. And, um, you know, for me, going to the library is always a challenge because I always end up in, in a rabbit hole where I go in and I'm, I'm set that I'm going to do this today from this hour to this hour. And then I get in there and then I just read like in a footnote something silly. And the next thing I know, I, I've spent three hours reading about something else. And for me, that's, you know, that happened a lot with Edgar Allan Poe. Um, <laughs> I definitely went down a lot of rabbit holes with Edgar Allan Poe, finding information about other things and maybe future books even of things that I would like to talk about. But uh, certainly, you know, the, the serendipitous situation of that library saying to me, hey, did you know that Edgar Allan Poe plagiarized a poem written to the Charleston Courier two years before he was born was really something. And um, if you like, I'll read you just like a couple lines of that poem so you can see just how much like it is like Annabelle Lee because it it really it's really shocking. Um, now again, this was written uh, into the paper on December fourth, eighteen o seven, which Edgar Allan Poe wasn't born until eighteen o nine, and it's only signed by a man named D M C. He doesn't give his name; just his initials. And he just says to the editors of the paper, "I'll trouble you with an occasional trifle if you can spare it a corner." And the name of the, the poem is called The Mourner. And it goes, How sweet were the joys of my former estate, health and happiness carol with glee, and contentment never envied the pomp of the great and the cot by the side of the sea. With Anna I passed a mild summer of love till death gave his cruel decree and bore the dear angel to reasons above from the cot by the side of the sea. But the smile of contentment has never returned since the death tore my Anna from me. And for many long years, I've unceasingly mourned in my cot by the side of the sea. So if you read Annabelle Lee, you know, not just the theme of losing your love as in Annabelle Lee, but the rhythm of the poem, everything about it is it's strikingly similar. And, uh, you know, you can read my book to read more about it, but within the same newspaper um, of that day of December 4th, 1807, there's an advertisement for the theater in Charleston uh, under a director named uh, Placide. He was a Frenchman uh, who was the, the theater operations manager here in Charleston. And both of Edgar's parents had performed in Charleston in the theater under Alexander Placide 
before Edgar was born. Edgar was actually here as a two-year-old with his mother when she was performing in the theater. So it seems that maybe when Edgar was here, he was looking for information on his parents who his, you know, his dad had died um, when he was just a newborn. His mom died when he was only two. Uh, so it seems that maybe Edgar was looking for information on his parents in newspapers here in Charleston, came across that poem and maybe just wrote on a scrap of paper, or kept it in his mind. And then, you know, actually the year of his death, he wrote the poem Annabelle Lee. So pretty amazing that connection to uh, a Charleston newspaper. That is fascinating. And I think a lot of people probably don't, don't know that or have never come across that. Um, one of the things that uh, popped into my brain as we we're talking is, you know, you, you mentioned there, there is a ton already out there on Edgar Allan Poe. What does your book, Edgar Allan Poe's Charleston, do that sets it apart from all of the other books about Poe? So certainly there, there's nothing really specific about Poe's time in Charleston. Um, there's, you know, most books just kind of mention blurbs about the fact that he was in Charleston. And most of that's because Edgar himself tried to hide that history during his lifetime. You know, Edgar joined the army and ended up at Fort Moultrie on Sullivan's Island here in Charleston because he actually ran up gambling debts when he was at the University of Virginia. He was hiding from creditors when he joined the army and served here in Charleston. He was going by the name Edgar A. Perry, not even Edgar Allan Poe. Um, there were a lot of rumors at the time that he had turned into this Lord Byron warrior poet, had gone to Greece to fight for Greek independence, and he was in Russia. And Edgar was more than happy to kind of push that narrative to describe this kind of lost period of his life when he was actually in Charleston serving as a private in, in the army. So this book really focused on specifically to his time in Charleston and then specifically to what things in Charleston may have um, given him, you know, inspiration for some of his poetry and then also for, uh, you know, his short stories and talks about like the ways you can celebrate Poe in Charleston. I, it's, it's almost a little shameful that Charleston doesn't celebrate Edgar Allan Poe a little bit more. The Gold Bug, actually during his lifetime, was his most successful short story, more successful than The Telltale Heart or anything. In fact, he said himself that, uh, you know, The Gold Bug was his most uh, popular and well, most read story until The Raven came along. And he quipped at one point to a friend, he said that the, uh, the bird beat the bug, that the raven finally outdid the gold bug. So uh, there's not a lot of, you know, emphasis on Edgar Allan Poe's history in Charleston. If you visit Fort Moultrie, there's no mention of him at Fort Moultrie. But I really tried to, to bring him to life here in Charleston and talk about like the influence that he had on Charleston, the influence Charleston had on him. Well, I certainly do think that if anyone who's listening uh, hasn't gotten intrigued by Steed Bonnet and Edgar Allan Poe through this conversation, they certainly will want to pick up your books and, and read a lot more. So um, as, as we wrap up, what kind of special projects uh, do you have coming up or anything you'd like to mention? Yeah, so right now I'm working on another book. It's actually a little bit different than the ones I've done before. It's going to be called A History Lover's Guide to Charleston. And it's actually, I picked about 125 sites in and around Charleston. Uh, with a little bit of history of each one, kind of a brief history of each one. It's more of like a, almost like a guidebook. So if you're a history lover coming to Charleston, whether you be a tourist or even a local, and you want to explore, it'll actually have some maps with it too, so you can find different locations and learn about all these different sites. And um, 
and then meanwhile, in this crazy virtual world we live in, I've been doing lots of online, you know, Zoom lectures and things. And I have one coming up on October 29th that the Powder Magazine has a series called Second Cup, meaning second cup of coffee in the morning, to sit down and listen to uh, a historian talk about a subject. And mine is October 29th, and I will be talking about Edgar Allan Poe for Halloween on that one. And you can visit the Powder Magazine, which is on uh, Cumberland Street in downtown Charleston, but you can uh, sign up and join that virtual discussion. So that's on October 29th. Great, thank you. A um, lot of great information and we will have links on our podcast webpage to uh, your books and also a lot of information that we've discussed today. So I really appreciate it and thanks for, for talking to us today. Well, thanks so much for having me. And thank you to our listeners. You can find Library Voices SC on Podbean, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio, or add us on your favorite podcast app. Our podcast website address is librarievoices.podbean.com. We also love hearing from our listeners, so please send us your comments and suggestions for future topics. Library Voices SC is the official podcast of the South Carolina State Library. So until next time, this is Curtis Rogers. Thanks for listening.